Morning. How's everybody today? Good, good, good. All right, we have to do this once a year. Every year it's uh, required. Uh, how many of you pulling for the Eagles today? How many pulling for the Chiefs today? How many could not possibly care but glad to get some food today? <laughs> that one wins every year. It doesn't even matter. Maybe last year the Rams won. I don't know. But anyway, um, since we're doing some uh, group participation, let's continue. Uh, I'm going to ask you um, to raise your hand if, before coming here this morning, you spent at least a little time looking into a mirror. At least a little time, right? Um, and, and how many of you look at least a little bit better than you did when you first looked in the mirror this morning? <laughs> Ask the person next to you, they'll tell you for sure. Um, so the reason I'm asking that question is because that, that is such an everyday thing for us, right? You're, you're not going anywhere without at least looking in the mirror. It takes me forever to do my hair in the morning. I got to take my time and get it just right, right gel and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and none of us would go out anywhere until we had at least glanced in a mirror and got a sense of what we look like. And sometimes when we look, we're like, oh my gosh, some things need attention, right? And we have to fix those things before we head out. Well, this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to take our Bibles and we're going to use the Bible as a mirror. It's amazing how well the Bible works as a mirror. Sometimes you look into it and you do not like what it shows you about yourself, but it also gives you the opportunity to address what you don't like about yourself, what is not in keeping with the way the mirror says you ought to look. And so um, I'm just going to warn you this morning, right off the bat, uh, I told you early on when we started this study of First Peter, there's going to be some stuff that we're not necessarily going to love, where there's going to be some stuff that is going to challenge us and some stuff that, frankly, is going to punch us in the gut. And there's going to be some Sundays in the next several months or weeks that we're going through First Peter, when you're going to leave here, not so sure that you feel better than when you got here. And that's because the nature of God's word is that sometimes it cuts deeply into us in order to transform us. Amen? So we're going to be open to that. And um, so I want to warn you that uh, you may not like everything that you see this morning when you look into the mirror of scripture, but if we don't get an accurate view of ourselves then how are we ever going to know what needs to change? So that's how we're going to approach this. Now, think about it this way. Uh, today's going to be the Super Bowl. As I said, the, the Eagles are playing against the Chiefs. Um, and as, you, as they pan the crowd in the, with the cameras, how will you know who's an Eagles fan and who's a Chiefs fan? What, what would be... what? Okay, the color of their jerseys. Some of them are going to be wearing green jerseys. Some of them are going to be wearing red jerseys. That's a quick telltale sign. What else? How else might you know who's an Eagles fan, who's a Chiefs fan if you watch the game today? Face paint. Oh, yeah, face, face paint. Okay. If, they, if they're basically costumed to match their team, you know that way. What else? Yeah, what makes them happy and what makes them sad in the game, right? What are they excited about and what are they not excited about? That's going to tell you a little bit about it. 
um, there's all kinds of distinguishing marks that you'll be able to tell pretty easily who's, who's pulling for the Chiefs and who's pulling for the Eagles. The truth of the matter is almost everybody in that stadium is some corporate honcho who couldn't care less about either one of those teams, but that's who gets the tickets. But be that as it may, there are some ways you can tell which teams people root for, right? Well, in the same sense, there's supposed to be some ways that you can tell a genuine born-again Christian. There's supposed to be some telltale signs, right? So since we're doing so well with all this audience participation, I'll tell you when it's time to shut up. But for now, I'm going to let you keep talking. Um, uh, what are some telltale signs of a person who's being transformed by Christ? Joy. Joy? Yeah. Good. What else? Yeah, what comes out of their mouth? Jesus said it's from what's in your heart that the mouth speaks. Okay, what else? Attitudes, Attitudes absolutely. Attitudes change. What else? Okay, there might be the, the distinguishing marks in the way they dress or things like that. What else? Love. Love. Yeah, it, I, I, I want to say that some guy once said, they will know you are my disciples by your Love. love right? Love's supposed to be this distinguishing mark. Love for one another, love for our neighbors, love for our enemies. Very distinguishing mark of Christianity. A lot of other religions teach hatred for their enemies, but, but Jesus teaches love for our enemies. Um, somebody mentioned joy. We could continue with a whole list of what the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience. Those are things that come because the Holy Spirit is within us and they become distinguishing marks on the outside. Another distinguishing mark of a, of a real Christian is genuine worship. Now, I'm not saying <clears throat> that you can always watch somebody else and know whether their worship is genuine, but you know whether your worship is genuine, right? And so you have a sense of um, a person's relationship with God because they genuinely worship. In other words, there are certain telltale signs that are obvious when somebody has a personal relationship with Jesus. But even with that list we came up with, which was great, and that audience participation has now ended. Um, but, but, there's a, but you're allowed to say amen, Byron. You're still allowed to say amen. Okay, good. Um, but, but there's a pretty big mark, even on this list that we came up with, that is, that is missing, and, and Peter addresses it in 1 Peter. So hopefully by now you've gotten used to looking at 1 Peter. It's at the back of your Bible. It's, it's once you get past the book of Hebrews, which is a big book, you come to James, and then you get to 1 Peter. I want you to go to 1 Peter chapter 1. And uh, first, we're going to just get the whole passage in context. So let me read it to you, beginning in verse 14. 1 Peter 1, 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. So there were some telltale signs. There were some marks of you not being a Christian that he's saying don't continue to be conformed to those things. Verse 15. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed 
with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he who was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's stop there for now. Last week, we talked a lot about this idea of transformation. If you were here last week, you remember that. We talked about the difference between transformation and reformation. We talked about the difference between being fixed and being born again. And we got into that in some detail. And if you didn't catch last week's message, I encourage you, catch it online because it will help you to get some real perspective on the rest of where we're going in First Peter. But he's talking about transformation. We use that illustration of how a caterpillar is transformed into a butterfly. And, and you would look at a caterpillar and a butterfly and you say, man, they've got nothing in common. But in fact, one is a transformed version of the other. How can you tell, audience participation again, how can you tell when you're looking if it's a caterpillar or a butterfly? How can you tell? Wings. Wings are a pretty clear telltale sign. If it's got wings, it's probably no longer a caterpillar. You can look at a caterpillar and a butterfly right next to each other and, and you go, man, they, they have nothing in common. They look nothing alike. They are entirely different. You don't have to scratch your beard and go, hmm, I don't know which one is which. You can tell immediately the transformation that has already taken place on the inside is now evident on the outside, and that's why this former caterpillar gets up and flies, right? It's a great illustration of the transforming work Jesus does in us. And yet, this morning, I'm sure there are church buildings all over America that are filled up with people who don't appear to be any different than the people who would never darken a church's door on Sunday mornings. We have a reputation as American Christians being pretty unchanged. Now, I'm sure that's not true of any of us because we're the good Christians, right? But, but all over the world, church buildings are filled up with churchgoers who, who would uh, maybe go ahead and wear that Maybe they go ahead and have that bumper sticker on their car. Maybe they carry a big leather Bible. And yet the people who see them at work, the people who confront them in their neighborhoods, the people who bump into them in the grocery store would never have any idea that there's anything different about them. And I think as we look into the mirror of scripture, we have to ask ourselves about that honestly. So what is up with that? Why is that the case? And how can I make sure it's not the case for me? In fact, for a lot of people, other than how they spend their Sunday mornings, a lot of professing Christians show no obvious signs since they prayed that prayer or since they joined that church or since they got baptized or whatever their big sign was. And that seems to be the most common objection that unbelievers have when you ask them why they're not interested in Christianity. It's the most common objection. 
I, I have found over the years of talking to people about the Lord that I almost never run into somebody who says, you know, I'm not a Christian because that Jesus guy is a jerk. Nobody has a beef with Jesus. Almost everybody feels great about the way that Jesus lived his life. Now, granted, when you get into the doctrine, there are some people who go, yeah, I, I think it's very exclusive of him to say he's the only way to heaven, and that might be their beef. But not one single beef about how he treated people, about whether or not he lived out his faith, about any of those kind of things. And so people constantly tell me, listen, I have no problem with Jesus. I have a problem with the people I know who claim to follow Jesus. And, and, and I always say this when I talk about this, that um, we have to take all of that with a grain of salt. Some of those are legitimate points and some of them are not legitimate points. But the fact remains that in America at least, Christians have a reputation for being a lot of talk and not much walk. That's what we see when we look into the mirror of scripture. We have to ask ourselves then, What's he talking about here when he tells us that we're supposed to be holy? See, too many of us are content with basically the same lives that we have been living or were living before, and and yet Jesus, with Nicodemus, uses this term born again. He he says, you are going to be a completely new creation. In, in Corinthians, Paul writes this. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things have become new. So this transformation thing is not just Pastor Doug's cute way of illustrating things. This is the whole point that is made in the New Testament, that a relationship with Jesus is a transformational relationship. And some of us, dare I say, are unpreaching with our lives the gospel we're preaching with our lips. And we need to own that. So, so Peter, who by the way, is way worse than me, he never pulls punches. He doesn't care whose toes he steps on. Peter addresses this issue right off the bat in this letter that has come to us that we call First Peter. Look at verse 14 again. As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. Now, that, that phrase, obedient children, I don't know how it is in your translation. I'm using the New American Standard translation. I don't know what it says in your translation, but it's not easily translated in English. And the reason is that in the Greek, it's very clear, but in the English, it's confusing. When we read this in English, we read obedient. That's an adjective. English teachers, back me up. That's an adjective. And children, that's a noun, right? So the children are the noun. The adjective describes the noun, obedient children. But in Greek, there is no adjective here. There's simply a noun. And the noun is a one-phrase noun, and it is children of obedience, okay? So I, you say, well, that's, isn't that the same thing? No, it's not the same thing, and here's why. Because if it's just an adjective that describes children, the implication is there are some children who are not obedient. But in the Greek, it says, if you're a child, you're obedient. Obedient children, children of obedience. It's important for us to understand that because he calls us that. As children of obedience, do not be conformed to the former lusts of, your, of this world. And he goes on and talks about that. 
So Peter is not pulling any punches and he says, you, if you're calling yourself a child of God, obedience needs to be the mark of your life. In other words, all true children of God are marked by obedience. Just as all butterflies are marked by wings. And nobody calls you a butterfly if you're still crawling around on the ground without any wings. There's a difference. So all, all butterflies are marked by wings. All Eagles fans are marked by their rude, obnoxious behavior. <laughs> right? <laughs> Am I wrong? <laughs> and, and all Christians are marked by their obedience. So <laughs> here we are looking in the mirror. We're like, oh, that's a hard one. I'm not sure how much I like that one. He's saying if, I'm, if, if obedience is not a mark of my life, then I'm not a child of God? Is that, is that really what he's saying? It doesn't mean that if you're a Christian, you never disobey God. So, whew, right? It doesn't mean that you never disobey God. We'll talk more about that later. But it does mean that your life is characterized by obedience to God. Let me help you see this picture. Um, a few months ago, uh, my son Garrett and I went to a baseball game together, which we are, have been known to do. And uh, from the baseball game, we took one of those selfies and I posted it to social media, just Garrett and me with the baseball game in the background, posted it to social media. And all of a sudden, my social media feed starts blowing up from all these people that I knew when I was in high school and college and I was in my 20s. And they all were saying the same thing. Oh my gosh, he looks exactly like you. I thought I was looking at a picture of you. He looks exactly like you. Now go ahead and pray for Garrett. Do <laughs> so you know what that means? It means when I was his age, I was as good looking as he is now. And it may mean, well, never mind. <laughs> Let the kid have some hope. But everybody kept saying, oh, it looks just like you. He looks just like you. He looks just like you. And, and it I made me think about this. Um, you know, when a boy is born in the flesh, chances are he's going to grow up and look something like his dad. And when a person is born again in the spirit chances are they're going to grow up and look something like their heavenly father. And so that's what God is telling us in scripture. He's like, listen, as my children, you're actually going to get reformed, reshaped, remade, so that you're made, as it says in the, in the book of Romans, conformed to the image of Christ. That we actually begin to look like our heavenly father. So, bad news for Garrett, you grow up to look like your dad. Good news for us, amen? amen? So, that's a process that as Christians we're in. Now, I'm not telling you this, <laughs> I, just, I gotta warn you, I am not telling you this so that you can judge the salvation of your friends. I'm not telling you this so you can judge the heart of your spouse or, or your siblings, or your enemies, or your coworkers, or anybody like that. Remember, mirrors are for us to look into so we see what we look like. 
This is a calling on our part, on God's part, in our lives to say, hey, let's examine ourselves, as the scripture says, to even see whether we're of the household of the faith. Are you actually a child of God? And one of the marks of being a child of God is not that you never sin, you never fail, but that your life is marked by a process of growing to look more and more like him. That you're being conformed to the image of God. According to Peter, a life marked by obedience to God and his word are the surest signs of genuine spiritual life. So he says, don't be conformed to the way you used to live, driven by your lust into your behaviors, uh, um, informed by your ignorance to make your choices. Stop living that way, he says. Instead, God has another prescription for us. Look at verse 15. But... Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Whoa. That can't actually be serious, can it? I mean, honestly, I I just said, none of us is perfect. It doesn't mean you never sin. But then the very next verse says, be holy as I am holy, says the Lord. And I look at that and go, "Um, I don't get it. Because I mean, obviously God doesn't really expect me to be holy like he is. After all, if if you want some good reading this week in your quiet times, go back and read Romans chapter seven. We covered it when we were doing our series on Romans. But in Romans chapter seven, Paul does this whole thing, the great apostle Paul, where he describes his struggle against sin in his own life and says, I haven't arrived yet. I'm still struggling with the flesh. I continue stumbling. I continue making mistakes. And then he he transitions right into chapter eight where he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he gives us all of chapter eight, which is this glorious picture of the gospel and how you are saved from the before the foundation of the world when God foreknew you, predestined you, called you, made you alive in Christ and that you are already glorified in Christ. So obviously, Paul understands and Peter understands that when we're called to be holy by God, it's not as if God just uh, doesn't know that we're still dealing with the flesh, that we're still stuck in this world, that we're still being tempted by the enemy. So how can we be holy like God? And if that's the minimum standard for God, I might as well tear up my Christian club card and walk away. But before we do that, what does the Bible mean in this passage, when it tells us to be holy. I want you to leave a marker there in 1 Peter because we're gonna come back. And I want you to go over to the left to the book of Ephesians. It's not too far to the left. It's uh, after Galatians and before Philippians. Go to Ephesians chapter two. Another one of my very favorite chapters. Ephesians chapter two. I'm just, just follow along with me as I read this to you with this thought in mind. What does God mean when he says that we're to be holy? Ephesians 2, chapter, uh, cha- 
Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. There's that theme again from death to life. It's, it's rebirth when we come to know Christ. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit who is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show his surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, and not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Obedience is the mark of the Christian just as much as disobedience is the mark of an unbeliever. Go back and look with me at verse uh, verse two. He talks about these trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. We're called children of obedience in 1 Peter 1 as Christians. Christians are called children of obedience. And here in Ephesians, unbelievers are called sons of disobedience. So what is the identifying mark? Well, one of the clear identifying marks between those who are walking with Jesus and those who are not walking with Jesus is that one life is marked by disobedience to God and the other is marked by obedience to God. And and then continue on in verse 3. Uh, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That's what used to characterize the lives of every Christian today, is that we used to be driven not by our love for God, not by the transforming work of the Holy Spirit, but by whatever lusts and desires I have in my flesh that makes me want to get everything for me and take care of me and make me the center of the universe. And that's how we used to all walk. Now, Paul uses this term walk all the time in his epistles. It's his favorite metaphor for describing the Christian life. He's saying that when we know Jesus, we walk with him. That where he goes, we go. And we just take his hand and he becomes the leader and he guides us and our life is described as a journey, as a walk, as a trip that we take with Jesus. And he's saying that in general, the general description of our life is that walk and and the general description of the life of one who doesn't know Jesus is disobedience. And I love the way verse four begins. After describing all that mess, Verse four, but God. I'm telling you, I think it's my favorite phrase in the whole Bible. But God. You describe the gigantic mess that we're in and it goes, yeah, but God. God intervenes, right? And and as he intervenes, um, he changes darkness to light. But God. Verse four, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, 
even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive, born again, together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's already accomplished. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You see how both in Romans and here in Ephesians and elsewhere in scripture, when God is describing the nature of salvation, he describes it as something that is both past, present, and future. That, that God's salvation is unfolding in time, but it's already accomplished. It says here, you're already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Now, look to your left and right. You see Jesus? What does that mean? I'm already seated with Christ in the heavenly places? Sure feels like I'm still walking around on earth, right? That's because I am. And yet it is done, it is finished, it's the accomplished work of Christ that guarantees my seat in the heavenly places with Jesus. It's already done. And so when, <laughs> amen, I like that. So then when, when we literally, when we literally come into relationship with Jesus, our whole salvation process is completed because Jesus promised it all the way back before the foundation of the world and accomplished it on the cross and in the empty tomb and has guaranteed it for us by sealing us with the Holy Spirit. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you have a personal relationship with Christ, not because you do good works, not because you go to the right church, not because you wear a cross on your uh, chain, not because you have a fish on the back of your car, but if you actually have a relationship with Jesus Christ, then your salvation is guaranteed. There is nothing for us to be fearful of. What can mere man do to us? So he's not talking about something that you dream about or wish might happen someday. He's talking about the current reality of the Christian life. You were formerly a son of disobedience, but, you, but God intervened and brought you to faith. And in that faith, you now live and move and have your being. You walk in that faith because you know Christ. If you're a Christian, you have already been transformed. And what Peter and Paul are trying to tell us between these two passages is that since we have been born again, since we have been transformed, since we have been given new life, since we have been saved from the darkness and brought into light, since we are in fact children of God and no longer children of wrath, we had better start living like it. That's what he's talking about when he says, be holy even as I am holy. Now let's get back to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter one. Because in verse 16, he's quoting from Leviticus. It shows up multiple times in Leviticus, this statement. You shall be holy, for I, your God, am holy. You shall be holy, for I am holy, says God. He's not telling us to get to work fixing ourselves. If we haven't figured out by now that we're not gonna be able to fix ourselves, then we're not paying very close attention when we look in that mirror. 
He's not telling us to get to work fixing ourselves and reforming our lives. He's saying that we've already been transformed in Christ. We've already been born again. We have already become sons of obedience. And it is high time, my friends, that we started living out that truth in our day-to-day lives. Living out that truth in our relationships. Living out that truth in the way we handle our finances. Living out that truth in what we set our eyes on and what we set our hope toward and what we set our goals for. It is high time that we started living in light of that truth. You see, too many genuine Christians, genuine Christians, are walking around today feeling defeated and questioning our very salvation because our behavior doesn't always seem to match the reality of what being a child of God is supposed to look like. We commit a sin, and the enemy whispers in our ears and tells us, see, you're still a caterpillar. You're, you're, you're still characterized by sin. He tells us we're still caterpillars, and we might as well just go ahead and get back to crawling around in the dust because that's what caterpillars do. And a lot of us buy that lie. And we think that because I've still got sin in my life, because I still stumble, because I still want some things that I know God doesn't want for me, that I'm, maybe I'm not even saved. I mean, the Bible says I've got to be holy, that Jesus died to make me holy. Well, I'm, I'm far from holy. And we begin to believe that lie and think, well, let me just get back in the dust and crawl around like a caterpillar. But if you're a child of God, if you're a child of God, Your sin no longer defines you. The finished work of Jesus Christ defines you. It makes all the difference in the world. You now have victory over sin and death in Christ. And the only question is whether you're gonna choose to walk in that victory in your day-to-day living. The word holy in 1 Peter chapter 1 is easily misunderstood. It's one of those very broad words that's used in all kinds of different ways and we're never exactly sure what he means when he uses the word holy. It has all these different meanings. Um, When referring to God, the word holiness in scripture um, almost always refers to perfection, absolute moral purity, complete perfection, the absence of any stain of sin. That's what it's talking about when it refers to God. But I have a newsflash. You're not God. I know, write it down. (laughs) Write it down. You're not God. You and I, we're still marred by the flesh. We are not perfectly pure, and we know that. Who are we kidding? We're not morally unblemished, and we know that. And by the way, you know who else knows that? God. God knows that. The Bible teaches as much from cover to cover. We're told this time and time again in Scripture. So what does holy mean in the context of 1 Peter 1? Well, the same word is translated as holy here is also translated elsewhere as sanctified or set apart. See, it it means to be separated out and set apart for a sacred purpose. So, so let me give you some examples. The Old Testament worship in the, in the temple, they had these utensils that they used to, to move the, the coals in the fire for the sacrifices and to move things around and all that kind of stuff. And those utensils are called in scripture holy. They're holy. They're, what are they? they're, they're made of metal and wood. What's holy about that? They're holy in that they are set apart for a sacred purpose. 
That's what it means. Um, the, the sacrifices, the meat that is sacrificed in the temple is called holy unto the Lord. It's holy. It is set apart. It is deemed to be different than any other meat that we might just eat on our tables at night. It's different because it's dedicated to God and his glory. The, the priest's robes that they wore during the ceremonies are called holy. Not because there's anything in the, in the linen or, or the silk or the uh, whatever the, I don't know what they made them out of, but um, that there's nothing in the fabric that is somehow special it's special because of its purpose. It is set aside and called holy in that sense. And the Mosaic law, here's one you're very familiar with. In the Ten Commandments, we're told to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. holy. That's interesting. It follows the whole story of creation. You know, six days, he, God worked to create, and it says and on the seventh day, he rested from his work, and he called it the Sabbath and set it aside as holy. And then in the Mosaic Law, we're told that we are to keep it holy. And that simply means that it is set apart from the other days. It is a special day. It is not like the other days. It is a day that is fully dedicated to God. In almost every other ancient culture, like we don't get this because we're like, oh, I'm on a three-day work week. How about you? Well, I work from home. I nap most of the day and then I log in, you know. But, but in almost every culture, especially in biblical times, everybody works seven days a week. You had to just to stay alive. And, and God said to his people, you're going to be marked by the fact that you set aside a day as holy. It's a day that is dedicated to the Lord. It is going to be different from the other six days. And on the seventh day, you're not going to be distracted by work and all of that kind of stuff. And instead, you're going to be able to just focus on your relationship with God. It's holy in that sense. But in every other sense, it looks like every other day. It's just a day on the calendar. So what is Peter saying here? Remember that you've been born again. Remember that you're not who you used to be, he's saying. That, that is characterized by your own fleshly lust and ignorance. You're a holy child of God, set apart for God's glory. In other words, if you're a Christian, you should be different and your life should be an, an offering of praise to God. That's what it means to be holy. He's saying, hey, stop stumbling around like a zombie. Start living like a child of God. You've been given new life. And that new life is to be set apart for God. So because you've been set apart, live like it. In Romans 12, Paul told us to stop being conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. In, in, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I want you to look at this with me. So, so flip over a couple of, a few books to the left. Um, after Romans is 1 Corinthians. Find 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, here's what it says. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape, so that you will be able to endure it. Now, I wish I had another 20 minutes to just preach on that verse, but some of you are already looking at your watches and going, man, the crowd at Denny's is getting big already. So let, let, me, let me just move here, but I, I do want to point this out. Um, it says here that we're all going to be tempted. 
your temptations may feel very unique to you, but they're common to man. We're all tempted in just a few basic ways and the nuance of those temptations changes from person to person or situation to situation, but we're all tempted, right? And he says, even as a Christian, you're gonna continue to be tempted and your flesh is going to want to say yes to those temptations. And, and he doesn't say, but don't worry because you're faithful. No, it doesn't have anything to do with you. It says, but God is faithful. You're gonna be tempted, but God is faithful and he promises to give a way of escape with every temptation. So if he allows you to be tempted, he never tempts you, he will not ever tempt you, but he allows you to be tempted. And if he allows you to be tempted, he will, he will guarantee that there is a way of escape from that temptation. And in simplest terms, what is that way of escape? Obedience. You have a choice. And I know this sounds like, well, no duh, obviously, except look at how we live. We, we, we live sometimes like we got swept away in a tsunami of sin. Like I was just minding my own business and whoosh, I got taken away into sin. He says, no, no, temptations come and you have a way of escape. There's always a choice if you're a Christian. You always have an option. If you're a child of God, then you don't have to keep crawling around in the dust. You are holy, you are sanctified, you are set apart for his glory. By his grace and power, you can reject temptation and instead embrace God's will for your life. You can let go of bitterness and live in peace. You can repent of sinful habits no matter how long you've had those habits or how much you've fed into them. It's not about your faithfulness, it's about God's faithfulness. And he's always faithful to give you that way of escape called obedience. And when you choose that path, you're living the sanctified life that he came to give you. You're living the holy life that he came to give you. You're experiencing the abundant life that he bought for you with his precious blood. In 1 Peter chapter one, go back, let's go back to 1 Peter. Let's just finish off these verses that we read, starting in verse 17, because I want us to notice how powerful the blood of Jesus is. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. If you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished, spotless, the blood of Christ. Redeemed by the blood of Christ, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Verse 21. If you're a Christian, you are not your own. You signed that over. It was his life for yours. And so if you're a Christian, you're not your own. The scripture says you've been bought with a price in, in 1 Corinthians chapter six, and we don't have time to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians chapter six, read it at home this week, verses 19 and 20, it talks about how you were bought with a price, that God sent his son to pay the highest price possible to set you free from your sin. And that means you have been bought by God. You don't belong to yourself. Galatians chapter two, verse 20 it, it, it talks about, I have been crucified with Christ. 
It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. You see, when this rebirth takes place, when this transformation takes place, I'm no longer my own. I have been bought with an incredibly high price, and now I exist for his glory. And what he's telling us when he says, be holy as I am holy, is he's saying, you've been set apart for my glory. Live that way. As we close, I want to remind you that Jesus' blood carries the power of this new victorious and holy life that God has for us. It's not just the power to keep you out of hell. If it was, if it was just that, it would be enough, wouldn't it? wouldn't it? Wouldn't you be thankful? I don't have to go to hell for my sin. But it's so much more than that. It's the power to give you an abundant life right here and now. I'm reminded of the great old hymn entitled, There's Power in the Blood. Would you be free from the burden of sin? There's power in the blood, power in the blood. Would you or evil a victory win? There's wonderful power in the blood. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. Would you be free from your passion and pride? There's power in the blood, power in the blood. Come for a cleansing to Calvary's tide. There's wonderful power in the blood. Would you be whiter, yes, brighter than snow? There's power in the blood, power in the blood. Sin stains are lost in its life-giving flow. There's wonderful power in the blood. Would you do service for Jesus, your king? There's power in the blood, power in the blood. Would you live daily his praises to sing? There's wonderful power in the blood. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. Now, if you don't know that song, go look it up. It's cool. The blood of Jesus is enough to give you new life, a a sanctified life, a transformed life, a holy life is yours in Christ. But the ball is in your court. He's made all of this available to you. How will you choose to walk? That's the question. Let's pray together. Lord, we're amazed that there's power in the blood. So much power because there's also so much power in sin. And our sin has dragged us away from you. Our sin has interrupted the joy of our life. Our sin has put up stumbling blocks in our relationship with you. Our sin has ruined our relationships with others. Our our sin has led to depression and hurt and pain and death and eternal damnation. Sin is powerful, but it's nothing compared to the blood of Christ. And we're so thankful, Lord Jesus, that in your grace, in your power, you have set us free from the power of sin, that you have set us apart, sanctified us, and made us new in Christ, that we too can be holy as you are holy, even right now, sanctified, set apart, and that one day, the scripture says, we will see you as you are because we will become like you, and in heaven, we too will be holy. And so, God, we thank you for this incredible power in the blood of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Stand up. I want to just pray a blessing over you. As you go from this place, may you experience the power of the blood. 
May you walk in the joy of newness of life. May you be a light to a dark world that the world may know that there is power in the precious blood of the Lamb. God bless you.